All right, well, let's uh, turn to our first reading, and that will be Psalms 13 and 14. Beginning in Psalm 13, verse 1, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God to the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in mine heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemy say, I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing... Unto the Lord, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 14, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion when the Lord shall bring back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So we come to Psalm 13. Notice again we have this statement that uh, it is to the chief musician This tells us that the psalms are not only fitted, but designed for public worship. Over and again we see this in our uh, our Psalter and in the psalm titles. Um, It might be asked, uh, but with regard to uh, psalms and scripture, don't we need prophets to write such things? Well, we do. We do. But David himself was a prophet, clearly, in Acts 2, 29 through 31, the Apostle Peter declares that David was a prophet. Remember David's own words in Second Chronicles 28, sorry, First Chronicles 28. He will say, all this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me, even all the works of this pattern. So all of the stuff that took place, the changes to the worship that took place under David, They took place under David the prophet. Not just David the king, but David the prophet. All right, so we don't know what time of life uh, this this psalm was written in with regard to David. There is some affliction that might have been while he was in the wilderness fleeing from Saul. It might also have been 
in other days when he was fleeing perhaps from Absalom. Uh, we don't know. But it was some part of David's life where he was put under some very great affliction. So I'd like to put it in proper context here. When David says in verse 5 of chapter 13, I will trust in thy mercy. And when he says three times in verse 1, how long, how long, and then in verse 2, how long, and, and sorry, one more time, verse, verse 2, how long. Four times David cries out how long. When he says in verse 5, I have trusted in thy mercy, that's not contradictory to how long. Trusting in God's mercy is consistent with asking the Lord how long. Because David, in asking how long, is really confessing that he knows deliverance is coming. He's just asking how long. Not whether deliverance will come. David is completely confident that deliverance will come. But he's not sure when deliverance will come. This seems to be... Uh, the contextual uh, look at this psalm that I think many forget. Now the cry, how long, that's a, that's a common cry among God's people. We'll remember, won't we, in the first vision of Revelation, right, chapters 4 through 7, we have those souls that are under the altar and they cry out to the Lord, how long? Interesting that even those that have we might say become a part of the church triumphant rather than the church militant, are still crying out, how long, right? Uh, It is not sinful, beloved, to cry out, how long, to the Lord, as long as it is not accompanied with a sinful impatience. A sinful impatience. David cries out here, how long, without a sinful impatience. And so we, we must understand that, that this cry of how long, this is an invitation here in Psalm 13 to speak to the Lord in the same way, to follow the example of the prophet David, to have the, the same kind of greatness of heart as he did, where we can cry out to the Lord how long, but without sinful impatience and with complete confidence in deliverance in the Lord's good time. So... These are important things for us to remember. Um, David did not believe that God had, quote, forgotten him. Very often what the Psalms do is they present uh, the effect rather than the thesis. Let me say that again, the effect rather than the thesis. Remember when Jesus from the cross will say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet it is indeed absolutely impossible for one member of the triune God to forsake another member of the triune God. It's the effect that is being emphasized rather than the thesis. So it seems as if I have been forsaken, David will say. David knows he has not been forsaken, but he says this is what it feels like. So notice that David will not trust how it feels. He will trust rather what he knows to be true from his study of the word of God. How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Yet we understand that this is the effect, not what's actually going on. Um, If the Lord hides his face uh, in the absolute sense, it is impossible to do what David does here. Right? So let's, 
make sure we put these things in their proper context. The effect is it feels like you've hidden your face from me, that I'm not the recipient of any of your smiling countenance or favorable kindness, and certainly one being chased down by his son to be killed would feel that way. And so we have then feelings verified yet put in their proper place, right? We're not Stoics as Christians. We don't just, you know, it's not like we're, we're uh, although many of us perhaps are descended from the Brits, it's still not a matter of just keep a stiff upper lip, mate. It's not what we're after. What we're after is acknowledging to the Lord how it feels. He's a, he's a, he's a, a, a whole person savior. He wants to know all. He wants you to express all of what you feel, believe, emote. But he also commands us and sets that example here by his prophet David to put those things in their proper place. That doesn't lead proper understanding, knowledge, doctrine, grace. That must lead. Yet those other things, they are part of our human weakness, aren't they? So we come to the Lord in the midst of our human weakness. So then, after the four questions, how long, then he will, he will ask the Lord to consider and hear me. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And let's also put, put verse 3 in its proper context. This is what David is saying in verse 3. I have no other help but you. Lord. And so he calls upon the name of the Lord. Notice, he's got some pretty, you know, if this is Absalom's rebellion, he's got some pretty stout characters with him. Joab is with him. Abishai is with him. These are some of his mighty men, right? Some of those mighty men, they, they were able to, to, uh, to go down into a, a pit with a lion and come out okay. He's got some stout characters with him, but he doesn't trust in that. He puts his confidence in the Lord. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. And so verse 4 teaches us that David's life is bound up in that reputation that God would have him to have. And so it is an assault on the glory of the Lord if David, his anointed, falls. Then in verse 5, But I have trusted in thy mercy, my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. Well, may not seem very bountiful. What kind of condition is David in? And yet, David will speak of bounty, even in that condition. What does he remember? David remembers what he deserves. He remembers that, that at one time he was, he was marked as, a, as an adulterer and a murderer. He remembers his sin and what he truly deserves. If the Lord should should deal with him according to strict justice. And from that, everything that he has seems like bounty to him. The Lord has dealt 
bountifully with me, and so I have trusted in thy mercy, and my heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. All right, let's move on to Psalm 14. Everybody knows that first line. Well, the first line in the Hebrew is to the chief musician. Once again, it is for public worship. But everybody knows that, that verse 1 in, the, in your English version, um, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Everyone understands that. Everybody knows it is a common confession among Christians that we put that in its proper place, its proper understanding, and yet, very often, we don't live out that truth, do we? We don't remember that those who deny the true and living God are absolute fools. That when they do so, when they deny the living God, as Paul will tell us, they deny God's Godhead. They deny that he is the creator. They deny that God has left a witness of himself in the heart of every man. And they deny also that God is a just judge who will punish all sin. It is the height of folly to deny the true God. Because in denying the true God, we relegate ourselves to eternal punishment. And that is the height of folly. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to escape the wrath to come. And that is to believe on, to embrace, to hold on to, to, to catch and to hold on to that idea of the true and living God. Cast oneself at his feet. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There's none that doeth good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after God. They're all gone aside, all together become filthy. None that doeth good, no, not one. You see the universality of the psalmist's statements here. There's no exception. Now that does not mean that that those who are without the Lord are as bad as they can be. There is a common goodness of God that prevents... Uh, every person that has ever lived from falling into the worst of sins. Some sins are more heinous in the sight of God than others. And the Lord, through his preserving mercies, preserves some from falling into the, that, that depth of depravity. But the potential for that depravity is in every human being's heart. Those who are without the Lord... They are liable to all kinds of wickedness, all kinds of folly, all kinds of lies and untruths and worldviews and philosophies that are all designed to do one thing, to take you away from the Lord. Paul will speak of this in Colossians chapter 2. He'll say, let no man rob you of your reward." Let no one, uh, in Ephesians 4, lie in wait to deceive you of your reward through philosophy and vain deceit, not holding fast to the head. So these, these uh, workers of iniquity, as they're called here, sometimes they're within the church and sometimes they're without. And so we must not put our trust in men. We must put our trust in the Lord 
Paul will make use of this passage in Romans chapter 3, right? You'll remember the, the basic outline of the first three chapters of the book of Romans. After the greetings and the statement of the gospel in verse 16, along about verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And so it's bad news for irreligious man in the rest of chapter 1. In chapter 2, it's bad news for religious man. Thou callest thyself a Jew, and so on. And then in chapter 3, he quotes from this very passage. <coughs> and I think what he does is he puts the capstone on that. Bad news for anybody else, if, in case you think I've left somebody out. We want the universality of these statements to come to bear. And so, those of you that are here, uh, some of you children maybe growing up in your parents' home, hearing about Christ and and. You know, being brought along in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, I would just tell you that there is no salvation apart from Christ. And you must learn to cast yourselves upon Him. There's no Christian grandchildren in that sense. You're not ushered into heaven simply because your parents are Christians. You yourselves must embrace the Lord. You must call upon His name. You must come to Him for forgiveness of sin. You must have that sin of yours looming so largely in your eyes that you recognize and you see your own name written here in Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Such that you flee from that to Christ. And that goes for us all, not just the children. I'm not picking on you kids. It's all of us that must flee to Christ. So, notice also that eventually this practical or actual atheism... Right? And there's such a thing as practical atheism, right? You know, Stephen Charnock has a really great book for those of you that are into reading higher level theology. Charnock has a great book called On Divine Providence. His treatise on providence. I don't remember how long it is. It's not the longest of books. Maybe 120, 130 pages. Maybe longer than that. I don't remember. But one of the things that he hammers home in that is that if we're not looking day by day at God's providence as it coming from God, that is living as practical atheists. We must learn to recognize God all around us, not in that pantheistic sense, but in the fact that God providentially orders every event of our lives. We don't want to be practical atheists as we don't want to be professed atheists either. We want all of that to come to bear. We want the knowledge of God to help us to interpret the world around us by means of his word, by faith, faithfully, uprightly. So we don't want to be practical atheists. I believe that there, there may be many in churches today that are practical atheists. And by that, what I mean is they have their religious life and they have their secular life. Their religious life is governed on Sunday and their secular life is the rest of the six days of the week which is lived according to, you know, basic principles of good. That's practical atheism. We must not be like that. Like we said a couple of weeks ago in the afternoon, we must come to the Lord every day if we're going to be ready on Sunday. We must live lives where our hearts are prepared to seek the Lord day by day if we will profit from the worship service. Instead of going for weeks or months at a time and then 
hustling up, up to prepare because some ceremony or some special Sunday comes up, right? All right, so then in verse 4, Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the name of the Lord. Eventually, this atheism, or even practical atheism, works out in a kind of persecution. Now, it may be very mild persecution. It may be, you know, someone says, well, you know, uh, I went to the store the other day and I met with some, you know, I, I was asking the Lord if they would bring a, a good conversation I might have with the, with, with, with the checkout person or with another, another, uh, another uh, person in the store, another customer that we might be able to talk about eternal things. And you know what? The Lord brought that opportunity to me and the person that you're talking to, that's a mild form of persecution, isn't it? But if we're seeking to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and we're living before the Lord in that providential way, not as practical atheists, but as believers in the Lord in every event of our lives, what we will find is that eventually that will bring us into the crosshairs of others who don't live like that. But, notice, there were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. God is with those who believe in him and call upon his name. And the reason they do that is because they're afraid. They were in great fear. They did not call upon the name of the Lord. They eat up my people as bread. Why? Because they know. They know where they're heading. And they do those kinds of things to reinforce themselves in their unbelief. Similar to what we read in Romans 1. So then notice, ye have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, the Lord has a poor people. How quaint. Right? But then notice verse 7, the hope of the psalmist once again. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. And once again, David expresses his absolute confidence in the Lord's deliverance from the persecutor. He will come. He will vindicate. We do not know when. Beloved, some of us will wait until judgment day to be vindicated. But we will wait in hope, will we not? We will wait in confidence that the Lord knows what he's doing and his timing is always right on time. With that then, let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.